in our quest to be a biblical church and a biblical people. I want to remind you that's an Old Testament text, so please don't try to cram any of those items into the offering box in the back. That's not the point of the text this morning, okay? Have you ever walked into a room and forgotten while you walked into the room? That might be one of the loudest amens I've heard. Um, have you ever started to look for something online and you get sidetracked while you're looking for it and you look up and you've been, now you've been on YouTube for 10 minutes chasing a video of something you don't really even care about but the image caught your eye. You just lose track of time. You forgot why you were there and then an hour later your wife says, did you place the order at Lowe's? And you go, oh, that's, that's what it was. Yeah. Kids, have you ever meant to get on with your chores, right? You're like, mom says, you know it's your turn to wash the dishes, and you mean to do it, but you've just got one more, you've got 10 minutes left on the episode. I'll do it as soon as this is done, but that episode stops, and the thing about the streaming players is they auto-play the next one, so now you're two more episodes in, and you don't even know your address, much less where the kitchen is to watch dishes, You want to read that last chapter. You want to play one more round of the game. It happens to all of us. We can get into something and get so enamored or distracted by things that we can forget the reason we're there. It can happen to us when we come to the Old Testament and read Scripture too. We can get so focused on this law or that covenant promise or that particular detail or this strange cultural reference that's really only going to make sense to that one particular tribe of Israel in this one moment in time but we get so fascinated by that and the Christian bookstore online has no shortage of writings concerning that one crazy little topic that we want to read about that we can forget that the Old Testament is not written about us it's written about them and written for us And we look back at it through the lens of a resurrected king. And we look back at it filled with the Holy Spirit whose job is to always point us to Jesus. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus. We think about Exodus and kind of the main thing that happened on the mountaintop. If I asked you and we did a quiz of what's one of the most important things that happened on top of the mountain when Moses was called up, with a strong answer, we would thunder out the Ten Commandments. You recall from the balcony, most of those commandments, right? I see you up there. We're just rattled off right in time. Our kids just nailed it. It was awesome. Our students, sorry, students and kids uh, knew those commandments and knew them well. But it's interesting that most of the conversation on the mountaintop between God and Moses had to do with the tabernacle and worship. The fact that God was going to come down and meet with his people in a way that they could meet with him. Today, we're going to see the tabernacle's funding, furniture, and features all point to Jesus. That's my goal for you in the sermon this morning. It's not to get lost in the detail on the goat's hair had to be combed this way, and this particular onyx was so pure that you... No, you can find a podcast for that. I encourage you to look for it. Um, I'm sure some friends could point you to it. We're going to try 
our best to point to Christ this morning. As we get into this, I want to remind you of some key principles to remember, kind of overview before we dive into some of these details. Here are a few points that might help you. Number one, God provided the plan and the materials. God provided the plan and the material. So they weren't guessing it or winging it. They weren't trying to be innovative and figure out, now what would God like? You know, stroking their beards or their stubble, whatever the case might have been. What would God like? No, God told them exactly what he liked. And not only did he give them the plan, he gave them materials to make it happen. He equipped all the workers. He reminds them in everything that he must be first in everything. But let me tell you, before we move on, listen, the fact that God provided the plan and the materials, that's not the main idea of the text. The fact that he equipped the workers is not the main idea. The fact that he must be first sounds very important. And it's getting close, but it's not really the main thrust of what's going on here. Two more things to remember. God, his presence was going to nourish his people in a distinct way like it never had before. But that, that's close, but it's still not the main point. I like the last point there, that the Lord is the ultimate worship leader. Yeah, I think so. He's literally going to lay out how he wants to be worshipped. These are not the main point, though, of the account this morning. Here's the main point. You ready? God is making a way to be with his people in spite of their sin. At this point in history, he's revealing a specific plan on how he's going to to visit them. All right, let's dive in. You've got two headers for the text this morning and then one little note at the end with one New Testament verse. Your first header this morning, the funding points to God. I mean, even the way that God asked them to pay for the stuff pointed back to God's provision. Now, today's sermon is not about giving. Let the record show it could have been very easily. Boy, the commentator's ink flowed freely on the topic, but we don't have time for all of that. I read recently of one minister who received the following letter after a sermon on Sunday morning. I was never so disappointed in a service as I was Sunday. I had an unbelieving friend that got to come with me, and what were you preaching about? Money. I can assure you she was not impressed. And why money when there are so many beautiful things to say? You'd better reconsider such messages in the future. Leave money to God and he'll handle everything. Believe me. I love this church and usually, ouch, like the sermons. But that was terrible. Signed, a Christian who loves the church and loves to hear the word. Well, the reality is, sooner or later, anybody who wants to hear the word is going to hear a sermon on giving, or they've got to acknowledge the fact that the pastor is not being true to the text because it's mentioned in more than 400 Bible passages that specifically talk about money, and there are others that teach about the principles in general. Exodus 25 is no exception God gives instructions through Moses to the people to teach the people, and the lesson we learn is that we give our very best to God from the heart for his holy work. God provides for his people. He provided for them there. He gives them income. He gives us income. The people give to God offerings. 
The funding reminds us that God uses his people to fund the work with the resources that he entrusted to them. Everything needed to build the tabernacle God had already entrusted to the people. Think about that. We can only give what God has first given to us. All things come from him. David would say in 1 Chronicles 29, all things come from you and of your own have we given you. You're not the owner of your stuff. You're a steward. It's all God's. He doesn't just own the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hill. (laughs) And, And the things that God has entrusted to you are a reflection of your stewardship of worship, an act of worship to him. Not only did God create the materials that the people brought to him, but he also worked in their hearts so they were willing to give generously. Now watch this. I've seen this happen one time in ministry since I've been surrendered into church ministry. At one point in Exodus later on, Moses had to tell them to stop giving because they had more than what they needed. Scott? We'll keep each other informed when that happens, okay? He had to tell the people, stop giving. They had brought enough to finish this specific task and work. Remember, when we give, you're not actually giving to the church. You're giving to God through the church. That's what's happening here. We're not handing over the price of admission or paying dues when we give. We're offering something to God as an expression of our adoration and praise, just like the people here did. The Bible says, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. Guess where they got most of the fine stuff they needed? From the Egyptians. Remember, they left the Egyptians with plunder, and you and I, God has graciously allowed, watch this, to plunder the world with income and stuff and we get to worship him with how we steward that stuff for his kingdom even the funding pointed back to God second main header this morning brace yourself this has a lot of sub points the tabernacle points to God the tabernacle points to God you see with the ground we're going to cover there I'm not reading all those verses that's your homework some of you saw the sermon header this morning and noticed that I was, had on there chapters 25 through 27 and 35 through 40. I think some didn't come to church when they saw that and thought, what will Jeremy or Norm have? They're going to do tag team, right? They're going to get up here and you'll fall out and then Norm would catch in and Caroline read from the balcony. We'd figure it out, right? That's a lot of reading. Let me just give you an overview here. I do want you to read that on your own, but 25 through 27 are the instruction 35 through 40 are them doing the work. Got it? Now there's sometimes we'll touch a little bit of that later on as we finish up Exodus, but that's the bulk of that covered. The tabernacle. Most of the instruction that Moses gets on the mountain I mentioned to you was about the construction of the tabernacle. I know there's a bit of a glare here. It might be clearer there. I'm not sure with the sunlight for you. By the way, these images, for those of you online saying, what's that on the screen? It's, uh, they're, they're on the website as well. The tabernacle is a powerful and wonderful picture of God's relationship with his people. God is promising to be with his people. God is promising his very presence to be with his people. At the core of God's covenant promise in the Old Testament is not only that he will be their God and our God, but that he will walk among them. Think back to the garden. 
the first sanctuary, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And God met with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, walking with them in the garden. And then sin broke that fellowship. They chose to sin. They chose to rebel against God, just like you and I are sinners by birth and by choice. And God now is reinstituting a way that he might come down the mountain to dwell among his people. Now, as we cover some of the main fixtures and furnishings in the tabernacle this morning, if you're like me, and I pray that not too many of you are for many reasons, um, you're going to notice they're out of order. They don't make a lot of sense the way that they're laid out. You might expect instructions on building the tabernacle and then a list of stuff to go in it. Or maybe the list of furniture first and then here's the place you put it. But they're not. They're kind of all over the place and that's how we're going to address them as we go through just like they're laid out as we journey through the tabernacle don't get lost in the details I'm going to do my best to help you see how these point to Jesus the first thing we'll note if you look inside of that centerpiece there you see that thing the ark the first thing we'll note is the ark of the covenant I'll have a note up for you in a moment I'll leave the image up for just a few minutes the ark of the covenant uh, Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22, the next section in the text, point us to the Ark of the Covenant, which included the mercy seat. There were also a few items that would be placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this wasn't a trinket box, because inside of it we find the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. These served as reminders of where the Lord had brought them from and how he was faithful and worthy of worship. There are two cherubim on top of the ark, on top of the mercy seat, and in between those cherubim where their wings would almost touch in that small, tiny space, this big God was going to meet with his people. He would meet with a priest who was able to enter into the space. The ark of the covenant shows us that God's presence is majestic and powerful. The Ark of the Covenant shows us that God's presence is majestic and powerful. But we know that the Ark would pale in comparison to God's own dear Son. The Bible says in Hebrews 1 that this Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe By the word of his power, he's not contained between two wings on a mercy seat. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much more superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. The Ark of the Covenant, yes, shows us that God is majestic and merciful, but it points to the majesty and the mercy of Christ who would come. As we move through the text, next we come to the table for bread. I was surely hoping for a visual aid this morning, Lauren, but uh, it's a judgment-free zone. So, the table for bread. Lauren makes bread. It's actually become quite a ministry where she's given that out to many of our church family and also those that she comes into contact with throughout the week as a way to point them to the God uh, who supplies the bread. The table for bread shows us God's presence through provision. In verses 23 through 30 in your reading this week, you're going to see the table was set up in the holy place. It was not as important, though, as what it held. There were 12 loaves, 
please don't bring me 12 loaves, Lauren. I'll eat them all and need to be wheeled up here. I'll be like, 12 loaves of bread symbolizing God's people of Israel. There was one loaf for each of the 12 tribes. The bread served as a reminder that every tribe had a role in God's family. Each tribe had a seat at the table. The table also reminded them that God provides. This was the Lord's table and his bread, and he provided it for them. We're going to come to a table at the end of our service this morning. The Lord's table. The priests were later told to eat the bread on the table, reminding them that God provided for their daily bread. Give us this day, O Lord, our daily bread. God was their sustainer. God's fellowship was displayed through provision. God fed them and he sustained them and God feeds us and sustains us by grace alone. We know that God has given us something far greater than showbread on a priest's table. The psalmist even would say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Jesus would say of himself, I am the bread of life in John chapter number 6, verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The table for bread shows us God's presence through his provision, but it points to the bread of life. Jesus Christ. Next, we come to the golden lampstand. I won't ask you how much you weigh, but do we have any children in the room? Let's see. Help me out, Ashley. Um, Middle school, late elementary middle school that weighs 75 pounds. Is that about what they would weigh around there? No? How much is a 75-pounder? That's Aiden? Aiden weighs 75 pounds? No. Mark said he and Aiden weigh 75 pounds. Okay. <laughs> I, he, he put the hook out and I bet there. Uh, the, the 75 pounds. I want you to think about how much 75 pounds. And if you have a child or some of you have a dog maybe that weighs close to that. My word. Um, if you have a cat, you, they need to be in the hospital if they weigh that much. So 75 pounds. That's a lot of weight. 75 pounds. That's how much gold it took to make this lampstand. That is one fancy lampstand it was in the holiest area it was positioned directly across from the table it would shine on what was front what was in front of it the golden lampstand shows us God's presence through light some of you are already ahead of me that's cool God is light and his light symbolizes his presence and his holiness the priests were to keep this lamp burning continually we'll talk about that at the end it's the last element we'll touch on is the oil for the lamp It signified God's continual presence with them. God is and has always been and forever will be the light of the world. Now we look at this fancy and valuable lampstand and know something of greater value and brighter light that has come. In John chapter number one, the Bible says in him, in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 14, you know it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The light later came to live among us as the light of men, and his name was, say it, church, Jesus. We know that that life 
and light were tied together in him. That golden lampstand points us to the light of Christ that would come. In chapter 26, we get the whole tabernacle structure. So the whole tabernacle here is going to show us God's presence among his people. I've got a different image I'll put up for you in just a moment. Let me speak about this tabernacle, though. As you read through the chapters on your own in the coming days, you'll see that God has quite the blueprint for the structure. The whole thing shows us God's presence. God is there. Israel is told to build a tent. Now, what do you think of when I tell you about a tent? Some of you think about camping. Some of you think about a wedding marquee, maybe, or... Man, the next time we have a meal on the grounds here, I hope we have a tent. We had tents out on the grounds to keep the sun off of us from beating down on us when we had church outside in the parking lot last year as we were beginning to regather. When the Israelites got instruction to build a tent, and they heard the word tent, they thought one thing. You know what it was? Home. Dwelling place. You see, they were a people on the move, and they lived in tents God had come down to visit on Mount Sinai and now he was coming down the mountain to meet in the neighborhood he was going to dwell among his people he commanded them to make a sanctuary for me so that he would be able to dwell among them Jeremy read that as he finished the text this morning by God's design this tabernacle was placed in the center of the camp the 12 tribes were located all around it right in the center of the encampment of the Israelites the tabernacle would be it reminded them that God was to be at the center of their lives its construction pointed to the holiness of God and their need for a mediator to approach him visually it was the difference between the holy and the common guess what nobody else's tent looked like this one right Nobody else's tent looked like this one. The whole tabernacle structure points us to God. Visually, it shows that distinction. The people could only have access to God through sacrifice and through his appointed priesthood. Speaking of sacrifice, do you see that thing labeled the bronze altar? It's the biggest actual table. It's that square-looking thing uh, to the right there if you're looking at the image, right close to the center near the front entrance the bronze altar in chapter 27 is a place of sacrifice it shows us that entrance into God's presence only comes through a sacrifice just three elements left this is one of them two after this and we're done Poitras refers to this altar as God's stove it was a place for making sacrifices it was the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It measured more than seven feet wide and seven feet long and four feet high. There were four horns on the edges of it at the corners. Now this style of altar was common in those days because archaeologists have discovered similar specimens in Arad and Beersheba and Dan. It's wood overlaid with bronze. Everything inside the temple was gold. Here we have bronze. It's a place of constant sacrifice constant sacrifice when you read the actual construction it reads like a Weber grill like there's a graded thing underneath it and for stuff to fall out it was a place for it really it looks like it's describing a bronze charcoal grill 
constant sacrifice. The altar was the first thing you would see. So if we walked into that tent, into the place of entrance, we would see the bronze altar and the, the holy stuff would be behind it. Sacrifice had to happen before you could get there. The massive size of the altar confronted every single worshiper that walked into the tabernacle and reminded them of the massive gap between them and God. There had to be a sacrifice. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins. The people were reminded every day as they entered the courtyard. The bronze altar shows us that sacrifice is required to get into God's presence and you were stepping into the court. This is the next to last thing described in chapter 27 verses 9 through 19. The court of the tabernacle shows us that at this time God's presence was guarded. Though God would dwell in the middle of the Israelite encampment, it was clear that he was still separate from them. Walls and curtains would guard and separate his presence from them. He is holy but he's also merciful and gracious in making a way back to him. Around the tent was a fence. Inside the fence was an altar. The fence was guarded about 10,000 square feet. The court shows us that God's presence is guarded, but don't get lost here. On this side of Calvary, remember, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, remember, remember, remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, in him, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood. Of Jesus Christ that court of separation points to the fact that we are separated from God by our sins but Christ has bridged that divide for us and we come to the last element the tabernacle this morning you've been gracious to hang on for this long as we talk about furniture and fixtures right it's not a home improvement show we're seeing how the tabernacle points us to Jesus the oil for the lamp in verses 20 and 21 take your Bibles to Exodus 27 Let's read that text in verses 20 and 21. Now you've heard little mention of the priests and their duties up to this point, but we've already got a pretty good idea of what they're doing. The priests made the holy bread and put it on the table. They offered sacrifices in the courtyard. They took care of sacred objects. They would pour the drink offerings, sprinkle the sacrificial blood, and tend the fire. The priests took down and carried and set up the tabernacle whenever God and his people were on the move. But right here in the text, we have the first explicit command to the priest, the first sacred duty. Look at it in verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Wow. Here we have it. This oil that's mentioned is of the finest quality, lightly beaten, not crushed so there was no contamination with pulp. You say, what? Who, who cares about that? Here's the deal. Such pure oil would burn almost smoke-free with a clean, pure light on that lampstand we talked about. The light reminds the people to worship day 
or night. God's light was shining on them. They were His people. His presence was with them. And it reminds us of the oil that we have in our lamps, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God's light in us. What joy to know that God's presence lives in us as believers always, that His light shines from us in this dark world because the Holy Spirit is our oil. The Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle structure, the bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, and the oil for the lamp all scream out one thing. He dwells among us. God was coming down the mountain to meet with his people. Wow. And God sent his only begotten son because he so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God came to earth. Ultimately, the tabernacle points us to a person, not to a thing, not a state of mind, or not the force. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does the tabernacle foreshadow Jesus' incarnation, in Matthew 27, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, we see the veil that was another, the final centurion, the final guard there for separation between the people and God. The veil was torn from top to bottom. In other words, Jesus removed that final barrier between God and sinner. He also replaces the sacrifice that was required in the tabernacle and the priesthood that mediated on behalf of the people. He is all that, y'all. John 1.14, powerful passage. I want to put it on there. I'm going to ask you to read this with me out loud together. You can stay seated, but let's read this verse together. I've mentioned it one time before. We're going to read it out loud. I'll bring out one thing on the bolded word, and then we'll close in prayer. Let's read it together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Guess what word John used for dwelling? It's kind of a big deal. It's such a big deal. It's the central theme to the whole understanding of Israel and Exodus pointing to Jesus. It's the word skine. It's the word that means, ready? Tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. The Bible makes an explicit connection here between the tabernacle and Exodus and the coming of Christ. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Only this time he didn't just pitch a tent. He took on our flesh and blood. The old tabernacle was a visual aid. I've tried to use some this morning to bring attention to certain parts of the sermon. That's what the tabernacle was. That's what the temple was. Even when Solomon built it in all of its splendor, it was a visual aid to point to Jesus. God wants to have a relationship with his people. He wants to dwell among us greater than the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence with us in Christ is majestic and merciful because he is the living word. Greater than the table for the bread. Jesus is our provision. He is the living bread. Greater than the golden lampstand. Jesus is the light of the whole world. 
greater than the tabernacle itself. He said he'd never leave us nor forsake us. Greater than the bronze altar and the blood of all of those bulls and goats, Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. Greater than the court of separation, Jesus' sacrificial death, his burial, and his resurrection from the grave on the third day has leveled the ground for those of us who want to access God's presence. And greater than the oil for the lamp, which needed constant attention, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit himself, is with us, and he'll never, ever, ever, ever leave us. The greatest reality is the person of Jesus Christ. He gives us direct access to God without all the pomp and the circumstance. Jesus Christ is the true tabernacle of God, made of flesh and bone, skin and blood, sinew and tendon, All of this joined together with his divine nature because despite his humanity, he is truly God and he is truly man. The tabernacle was the way for Israel to meet with God in a very distinct way at a very distinct point in history. Jesus Christ has come to meet with us and to call us into God's presence. The question is, will you tabernacle with him? Let's stand together. God is inviting you into the tabernacle, into Jesus this morning. The musicians are coming now. We're going to sing some songs of worship, and then we're going to have communion in just a few moments. But I don't want us to blow past this moment in time. Even as they're singing, it's a chance for you to do business with God. The old-timers used to say it that way. You can pray where you're standing. You can come forward and pray here if you want to. You can come to a front bench. That'll signify you want somebody to pray with you. I'll hop over there. We've got others that will. You're being invited to the tabernacle this morning. Will you come? A a sacrifice is required. Now, Jesus has already paid the sacrifice, but it requires for you to come into God's presence. That means the Holy Spirit is already doing a work inside of you because you wouldn't want to come if God weren't already drawing you. And if he's drawing you this morning, come. The spirit and the bride say come. Come into his presence this morning. Repent of your sins. That doesn't mean clean up all of your life immediately so you're acceptable God. No, it means turn from your opinion that you're in large and in charge and you've got it all figured out and recognize God sees that as rebellion. Turning from your sin means agreeing with God about your sin. Turn from your sins. Repent. Put your faith and trust in the true tabernacle this morning. Let's pray. Father, it's our desire today, not that we get lost in the detail and the minutia of furniture and fixtures and even the funding of the tabernacle, but rather, God, that we would be wrapped up, tied up, and tangled all up in Jesus. That we would see that it's in you that we live and move and have our being Lord, I pray today for that one that needs to do business with you, that needs to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in you. May today be the day, whether they're watching on a small or big screen right now or they're standing behind a pew on the property, God, I pray, draw them to you. Let this be the day of salvation for them. And for the rest of us, remind us in our Bible study and in life not to be distracted with every single little thing that comes our way but to keep our focus on the main thing, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen.